We are working through a series which has uh, mainly been in Second Kings, uh, looking at the life of Elisha and some of the mighty ways that God used him and applying it to us today. And um, I have the uh, honor to be able to uh, speak about some of the, the last bits of that. So we, I think we've got one more next week. Um, and I'm stringing together sort of three chapters, which um, I will tell you about in a second. Um, I'm calling this the completer finisher, okay, if you've kind of done any, uh, uh, if you know what that is in terms of business speak, that's the kind of person who actually is not just the initiator, but also the person who actually makes sure that things get kind of, there's not just a load of loose ends, and there's just, we've made lots of ideas, but we haven't actually worked out a way we're going to see that brought to its final conclusion. And... Uh, God's not like that. He actually, he starts things, but he also brings them right to their conclusion. We're going to look at some conclusions today. Um, uh, Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you, do you know that God's begun a good work in you? Say yes, Matthew. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Yeah? Now that's a personal, that's a personal word to you. And God, not only does he complete the personal, the individual, but he also completes the whole thing. The whole thing. And we're actually going to be talking a lot about the whole thing today. That actually God is the God who winds up history. There will be a day when God says, right, this is it, and this is the end of history. You get to the end of your history book, and you kind of go, so where's the next bit? Well, it's another whole heaven and earth. It's another whole thing. We're not even calling it history. We're calling it something else. Uh, and uh, it's, he's going to bring that to an end. And we're looking at a big, big picture. I don't know about you, but um, Anne and I... Uh, love watching TV dramas. Give me a wave if you love watching TV dramas. Okay, a few, a few. yeah, okay. Uh, I, I notice those in a certain age group are actually waving more than some in the younger age group. That's okay, okay. Um, and uh, if you have noticed, the number of the TV dramas are sort of bringing themselves to a conclusion. We're getting, we're nearly there at the end of Missing, aren't we? We're kind of waiting to see what's going to happen on that. Um, we, we've enjoyed a lot of things. And, and what happens often in the final episode is that there's an awful lot that's crammed in. You're thinking this huge number of kind of loose ends here. Uh, and these loose ends have to get knitted together. Wrongs are righted. Um, the conniving bad guys get their just desserts. Ooh. The underdog who's been uh, controlled, manipulated, has a change of fortune for the better. Uh, the woman chooses the unassuming guy who really loves her and not the flashy one. You know how it goes, you know. <laughs> you know. And um, we're going to be looking at similar sort of completions today. As God actually takes stuff that's, that's going to be going on for a long time, as you'll see. And really sorts it out in a very short space of time. Suddenly, one day, you're thinking, goodness me, whoosh, the whole thing happens. And we're going to be looking in the future at a one-day moment 
where God says, and that's it. And he brings everything. He brings history to its final conclusion in a day. Pray for me. <laughs> um, so we, we, this is really a, um, this is quite a gory, we, we're looking at some quite gory scripture here, okay? I'm, I'm just, I was going to say it's a kind of 15 plus certificate, um, really, but you, you just, you're just going to have to be kind of that age, okay? You guys, you, you youth that are kind of not in that age group, you know, if you're 15, you know, that's great. Um, if not, well, you, you, maybe you will hear some things that you're going, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that was in there, um, and, uh, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> We're also going to be looking at a bit of John Lennon, okay, uh, uh, hearing a bit of that, uh, his kind of comments on this. Um, and, um, but what, we, what I want to say is that the writer uh, wants us to note some things. He wants us to know that prophecy will be fulfilled even if there's delay. He wants us to, secondly, he wants us to see that God's judgments, when they come, come very swiftly. He wants us to see that righteousness will win in the end because God is a good God. And, and fourthly, um, it will be more radical than we had thought. I need to backtrack for you, first of all, before we actually... There's a lot of scripture I'm going to be reading, uh, but first I'm going to give you a quick synopsis as we go flashback into 1 Kings. Uh, and we're going to be looking at... Uh, Ahab. Ahab was um, a king over Israel, and he married Jezebel, okay, a Phoenician princess who worshipped Baal, not God. He, she worshipped Baal, and she basically influenced not only her weak husband, but also the whole of Israel. Um, these two, Ahab and Jezebel, are probably known as the most evil woman in the Bible, and also the weakest husband. Yeah, um, She totally dominated her husband, and thereby the nation of Israel. She was, if you like, the sort of Lady Macbeth of sort of 900 BC. Um, at her hand, many of Jehovah's prophets had been executed. Even mighty uh, prophet Elijah had fled for his life after she threatened him. And one day, we hear about a man called Naboth in 1 Kings 21, who was minding his own business. The only thing against him was he had the misfortune to own a vineyard which was bang next, right next to the royal palace. Didn't think it was a problem until King Ahab comes along to him and says, I'd like you to sell that to me, please. And he says, no, <laughs> I'm not going to sell that to you. Uh, it's actually my family. You know, it's been in my family. It is my family's inheritance. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. So he stands up. He refuses. And what does Ahab do when he is refused? He goes into a sulk. He's sulking. And his wife sees him and says, what is the matter with you? And he tells her. And uh, she's outraged. And uh, she decides to set up a conniving plot that actually frames Naboth um, using false testimony. Other people that kind of come along and say, oh, yes, he did this and he didn't. And basically, 
he gets found guilty and then he's taken out and he is stoned. Not only is he dealt with in this way, but all his kids are dealt with in this way too. So that, by default, then the property, hey-ho, gets handed across to the king. It is a dastardly deed. And it all looks like she's gotten away with it. Until Elijah, God's prophet, catches up with Ahab and delivers this damning prophecy. And we're going to hear the prophecy, and then we're going to see the prophecy fulfilled in 2 Kings. So here we go um, in 1 Kings 21. This is what Elijah is saying to Ahab. I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Beshar, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, says God speaking, and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel, the one belonging to Ahab, who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. This is strong stuff. That is, but the, the interesting thing is that it does seem like a long time between that prophecy as given by Elijah and actually we see any action taken. Elijah has been taken up in a chariot to, to heaven, and Elisha has had a double portion of the prophetic anointing. Um, Ahazar is now the king of Judah, and Joram, Ahab's son, is king over Israel. So I'm taking you through into, into Second Kings. Both nations however, are still controlled by the sort of Jezebel and Ahab dynasty. Jezebel's still alive. The reason is that one of these guys is Ahab's son, and the other one, his mother, is the daughter of Ahab. Both are dominated by this kind of Baal worship still, and God is not happy. And he sends in 2 Kings 9, which is where we're going to pick it up, he sends a prophet um, to go and sort it out. And Elisha speaks to one he's kind of training up and says, I want you to go to the captain of the army who's called Jehu to anoint him as king. And this is, we're picking it up again in, if you want to follow it through, um, verse 5 of 2 Kings 9. When he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting, and he said, the prophet, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu said, uh, for which one of us? And he said, for you, O captain. And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. You shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, 
and I will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. My comment, so Jehu then goes to find both Joram, remember these two kings, one of Judah and one of Israel, Joram and Ahazar, picking it up in 21. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahazar, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the property of, you got it, Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember him? And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, uh, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace, so long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many? So Joram reigned about and fled and said to Ahazar, there's treachery, O Ahazar. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms. And the arrow went through his heart and he sank in his chariot. And then Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord. And I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then, take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. Verse 27. And when Ahazar, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot. So they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is at Iblim. And he fled to Megiddo, and there he died. So what we've got just at this point is that both of those kings have been killed within a few hours of each other, and there's just basically Jezebel left. We're going to pick it up in verse 30. And when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? And then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him and he said, Throw her down. And they threw her down. And some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. And he trampled her underfoot. And when he came in, he ate and he drank. And he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. And they went out to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And therefore they returned and told him and said, this is the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung in the face of the field in the property of Jezreel, so that they cannot say, This is Jezebel. This is pretty gory stuff, isn't it? <clears throat> um, later, in 2 Kings 10, Jehu finishes it off. He goes and he slaughters 70 
other uh, children of Ahab that are come, and he basically puts their heads in a basket. This is strong stuff, uh, and um, I did promise you a bloodthirsty episode. Um, <laughs> in the space of really a day, the whole dynasty of Ahab and Jezebel are eliminated. Notice that Jezebel is super confident right up to the end, glitzing herself up with makeup, trying to make Jehu feel inferior by sort of saying, is it well <laughs> your master's murderer, meaning you're not actually a king here, you're just an underling who's kind of come up and has killed your master. Do you feel good about that? So even at that point, she's actually able to kind of, she's got a line for him uh, to be able to come back at him. Um, which is quite amazing. How do we deal with passages like this in the Bible? Okay? You may say, yes, Matthew, how do we deal with passages like this in the Bible? Okay, they are there, and we don't want to just, we don't want to just read the, the passages that we find easy. We need to grip, uh, grasp and grapple the word I was looking for, grapple with the text in order to say, actually, what is God trying to say to us? What is it that actually we need to hear from this passage? How on earth, you are going to be thinking, can you make some application from this passage to my life? Well, I'm going to have a go. Uh, I haven't actually read God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, but I have seen some quotes from that book, okay? And in it, this outright clear atheist who not only is an atheist, but is very vehement in his views, okay? Anti-Christ, uh, anti-God views. Um, and he accuses God, one of his things is he says, you know, actually, I cannot believe this. And the reason I can't accept Christianity is because in it we just see God as a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. And this is such a passage that actually you read this and you're thinking, this is, in terms of cleansing, he has completely cleansed the whole house of Ahab and Jezebel. Um, and I think it makes us face a tr big truth for us That clearly, those atheists and others like Richard Dawkins are saying the issue is there is no reckoning. There is nothing. There is actually, there is, there is nothing that's going to happen after this point. That actually, people live their lives and we just need to do the best we can. But the Bible is clear that Christ is returning. And not this time as a lowly child born in a manger, allowing himself to be crucified on a cross for the sins of mankind, but as a king and as a conqueror. Yeah? yeah. There will be a judgment day. There will be a day. And it's not something that we, it's not something that we focus on a lot. 
Why do we not focus on it? <clears throat> and yet, actually, a lot of the Bible, a lot of what Jesus talks about is there is a day coming. There is a day coming. I am returning. There is a day coming. We kind of, oh, it's kind of, I, I just want to hear the nice bits. I don't want to hear the difficult bits. I don't believe with integrity we can read Scripture without facing some of these tough bits. There is a day coming when God, when Christ is returning and he will separate those that have given their hearts to him and love him and say, I have completely submitted my life to you and those that don't. There is a day. There will be a day, and it will be a swift day. It won't be a kind of day that then says, oh, hang on a minute, now I realize the day's here. Let's just, uh, let me think about this a bit more. There is a day coming when Christ is returning. And it's a soberer thing. It's a sobering point, which we cannot ignore. We cannot ignore it, okay? We have to face it. You have to grapple with it. There will be a day, just as there was a day for Ahab, when God is bringing history to an end. Revelations 14, and I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim a gospel, a good news gospel to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. You have to make up your mind to choose, to follow one of two paths. One, that God is real, that he deeply cares about us, but because of sin that separates us from him, that he needed to send his son to live and die so that we could believe in him and have forgiveness of sins. Or, two, that he doesn't exist and we make our own right and wrong, that there is no judgment day, and actually, it's a bit like doing a degree that actually you get to set your own mark. How would you like that? You could just say, actually, I'm going to do the degree, and I think I'm going to give myself. Well, what are you going to give yourself? I'm going to make my mind up, my own mind up. I don't want anybody else making my mind up for me. I, want to, I don't want any adjudicating or somebody else. I just want to say, I think I deserve this. I'm going to set my own. Or are you going to say, no, no, I'm submitting and I'm saying God is the one who judges. The problem, the problem is that evil exists. We are and always will be those who are set on, the, sorry, there always will be those who are set on dominating other people for their own benefit. And we, even in the news today, we can hear about traffickers earning thousands of pounds, enslaving others, 
about drug dealers, about child abusers, about corporate giants who are just using their own financial dominance. We don't see the half of it. And yet, they are living out that life, actually not having any care whatsoever for the horrendous circumstances that they're leaving other people in. So we have evil to deal with. That's the problem. It's not just, oh, well, if we all just do right, then actually everything will be all right. This story centers around Naboth and Jezebel's treatment of him and his family. And God cares about the poor. God cares about those that are oppressed. Psalm 146. Blessed is he who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless by the way of the wicked he brings, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God cared about Naboth. That's the point. And we have to face the issue that it wasn't just, oh, well, I hope things get sorted out. It was, how am I going to sort that out? The Bible does not just leave it so that evil is free to burn itself out. We have a savior that cares. Welcome. <laughs> uh, we have a savior that cares. One who is going to stand up to the bullies. One who is going to call a halt to oppression. And we see elements of this happening throughout the Bible nar narrative. We see Jesus declaring it, I have come here to set free the oppressed. But ultimately, it all points to a day. It all points to an ultimate day when actually God is saying, and now I'm going to bring justice for every single thing on earth. And he points to that day. When we read passages, difficult passages like we've read, we need to be looking ahead at the fact of God saying, I am coming back. And I'm coming back to bring justice throughout. I am going, I'm not just leaving it. Now, there may be delay. And the reason there is delay, partly, is because of grace. Yeah? So often we're thinking, how do you, do you not get stirred up about this, God? You know, we can be watching some news thing. We can be personally involved in things that we know somebody who's been abused, whose life's terrible, and you're thinking, why don't you act, God? And God's answer to that is often, well, because I'm giving grace. This is a period of grace. This is, we live in a period of grace right now. We live in a time where God is saying, I know, I am bothered, I really care, and I know you, you are mad about it, and I'm mad about it too. But I'm holding off judgment in order that every single person has opportunity to turn to me and to repent and to come 
to me and to know about my love. And I bef I, I'm holding off judgment in order for that to happen. So there is delay, but there's delay for a purpose. A delay because God is trying to balance these two things. One is his justice, but also his love and saying, I want to give just opportunity. I don't want somebody to not have that opportunity to turn and to change and to open their heart out. I want to give opportunity for that to happen. We live in the days where we have opportunity. And we say, thank God, don't we? Thank God that actually there was opportunity. Thank God I had opportunity to actually turn and actually say, oh, I must get right with God. I must, uh, get in, get, I must engage with this truth and actually see if he's real or not. God gives us that opportunity. Jonah in the Old Testament is a short book, but is a book about God giving opportunity. And Jonah's quite upset because he brings this judgment word to the city of Nineveh and says, because of your sin, God is going to come and judge you. And they basically all repent and they fall on their face and they repent to God and God withholds his hand. And then Noah's upset, uh, sorry, Jonah's upset that actually he's done that. And why have you done that? Because they've repented, because I've actually, I'm a God of mercy. And if somebody repents, I'm going to get, I'm showing mercy. I've shown mercy. I know it might look like egg on your face, Jonah, that you said it and then it didn't happen. It didn't happen because I'm showing mercy right now. There's many occasions in the Bible where you see this phrase that's, that's called out to God. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? And we hear it a number of times if you search for that. How long, O oh Lord? How long, Revelation 6, O oh Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed. There is a holding back a little while longer. There's a little while longer while it's actually allowing for God to come. And he's saying, and there will be more that are killed, to be honest. There is... If there is no judgment, as Dawkins and others would have us believe, if, <clears throat> as is betrayed on our, in our modern art gallery uh, along the road from us, um, everything is going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right, meaning you don't... <laughs> what it's saying is you don't need to follow God. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be all right. That's, 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 that's the atheist's message. Everything's going to be all right. It's the kind of message that Jezebel could have said to her husband and sons. Everything's going to be all right. It's okay. If we lived in a world where everybody was decent and honest and thinking about each other's welfare... That would be true. The issue is that that isn't the case. The issue is that 
It, it's an absolutely absurdly unjust attitude if actually the world we're living in has atrocities that are going on and on and on. And it actually needs a savior who's going to come and bring justice. I was looking again at what John Lennon said uh, in his famous hit, Imagine. Let's just, uh, let's just listen to this a second. What does the Bible say about that? The Bible t- imagines a peace, a world where there is nothing to kill and die for. So it agrees with that, but it actually isn't as naive as John Lennon, who thought that actually it would just happen. We need a savior. That's what the Bible teaches us. We need a savior. Yes, God is saying, yes, I want the world to be one. I want the nations to be one. I don't want there to be killing and dying and wars. But you need me. And it won't just happen. We need a savior, a savior who empowers us to live a life of love for each other. A savior that has changed our heart from evil and thinking about ourselves to thinking about others. A savior that has removed sin that wells up in my heart and destroys everything that I hold dear. A savior who will lead the nations. A savior who is leading them not for his own benefit and power, but for our good. A savior who will stand up for the plight and for those who don't have a voice. A savior who stops oppression and violence and greed. And that saviour is Christ, who conquered death. Let's be clear that God's purposes, the only way to accomplish this is through a new world. To start again, he saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We can respond to this. Elisha, Jehu, Jezebel's story in 2 Kings 9 in two ways. Either we can totally reject it, as Richard Dawkins and others have done, as yet further proof of God, the ethnic cleanser, or we can allow it to remind us of what is to come. 
The takeaway point of this story is that the Bible is about a king who is coming. Let's just have the band come up. I'm going to finish in a second. The Bible is very clear that there will be a day that is getting nearer. And when God closes the book of history, the time of his grace to repent will have passed. And it is now a time where he is coming to return for his people. What does it mean for us personally? Well, it motivates us. It actually motivates us to say, I need to be able to talk to my friends. I need to be able to invite them. I need to be able to... There is an urgency about it. It isn't something I can just put off and think forever and a day it'll be okay. Actually, there will be a day where it comes to an end. And we don't know when that day is. Yeah? There is an urgency that says, actually, there is a point where it's actually God's going to bring it to an end and he's going he's to say, I'm, this is it. I'm, now I am going to bring judgment. We don't like to hear it. We don't like to hear it, but it's true. God is coming because he's saying, because I'm a just God and you cannot have my love without my judgment. You cannot have those two things. You cannot have, in order to deal with sin, I'm coming with my mighty Savior returning. What else does it teach us? It teaches us that when we get upset about world politics and what's going on, as we turn on our news, and we see the corruption and abuse that we're thankful that there will be a day. And we say, how is it ever going to sort out? And God's saying, it's okay. I've got it sorted. There will be a day and I'm returning and I will sort it all out. I'm going to come and I'm going to rule the earth. And there will be no more wars and there will be no more evil. No more corruption. And I'm going to, this is how I'm doing it. Everything will be all right in the end, but only because we have a mighty Savior who's returning. And I want to say it will happen swiftly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, in a twinkling of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, on Christ's return, the dead will be raised imperishable. God isn't sending a Jehu. He's sending a Jesus. Yeah? Let's stand up. Let's... I'm thinking, where was I going to end this? We need to end it in worship. We need to end it giving glory to God and saying, God, you're the only one who can sort it for us. You're the only one that can actually... And we know what we need to do now. We need to tell other people about Christ. We need to get them along to carol services and alphas, one-to-one chats, God, give us, give us a, an ability and a grace that empowers us to do it, that motivates us to do it, that says, I'm not just going to kind of ignore it. I'm not going to pretend it's not going to happen. It is going to happen. But Lord, help me in these days of grace to share about your love and mercy.